All right, what's going on, everyone? We've got a special guest today. This is something I'm really excited about since a friend, uh, Sayer Payne, helped set this up, but we're joined by Bob Liebeck. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you. So um, we've done a couple different, bounced around all over the area, some World War I, some World War II, and, and just a week or two ago, talked with a friend of mine, Leon Schwartz, about the Battle of Hamburger Hill. And it's, Vietnam is one of those conflicts that I, I feel like I have an understanding of until I start reading more about it and then realize how little I actually know about it. And uh, what better way to do that than to talk with some of our veterans who are there. So uh, Bob graciously agreed to take some time today and, and share some of his experiences. And I can't wait. I'm, I'm really excited to get into this. Bob, would you mind just providing maybe a quick background on yourself, a uh, little history of Bob before we get rolling? Oh, okay. All right. So the context of this <clears throat> is I was an infantry platoon leader uh, in Vietnam in 1970 uh, for the better part of the, of the Ripcord campaign, which was actually just part of Operation Texas Star. My background is... Um, I graduated from VMI in May of 1969, uh, changed out of one uniform into another, immediately went to Fort Benning for infantry officer basic, followed by airborne, out to a troop unit in California for four months, back to Benning in January 70 for ranger school, um, walked out of the swamp in April, um, first week of April and by the first week of May I was going through Screaming Eagle replacement training in Vietnam and by the way in that one month's time Uncle Sam sent me to jungle school in Panama for about 10 days so it was rush 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 and then um, and then I ended up in mid uh, mid May I ended up as a platoon leader in Charlie Company second of the 506 infantry which is part of the 3rd Brigade of the 101st. Um, the area of operation was exactly what Leon described. It was Northern I-Corps. Um, uh, the ripcord was not that far away from Hamburger Hill. Um, that's kind of the basic background. Awesome. And so to go way back here to the start of that, sir, you were at VMI 65 to 69, did you, if, if my math is right, which is always risky, but did you know from day one that you were likely headed to a war zone when you graduated? Pretty much. Uh, yeah. I, in, in fact, um, right before graduation, when we filled out our dream sheets, um, <laughs> I made sure it happened because I, I wrote down on assignment, I just wrote down RVN which means Republic of Vietnam. And um, Uncle Sam figured out pretty quick what that was all about. There was no mystery there, you know. What so, was, could you have chosen like Germany or, or were there, what were the alternatives? I honestly don't know. Um, I will tell you this, as it turns out, I graduated in 69, but for some reason there were guys from West Point and VMI from the 68 class that ended up in the Berlin Brigade 
before going to Vietnam. So I, I don't know what, and, and what happens is on those guys, when they showed up in Vietnam, the 68 guys from VMI and West Point, they, they only had a few months before they made captain be, because captain was coming in two years. One year wow. to, from first, first lieutenant to uh, second lieutenant to first lieutenant one year, first lieutenant to captain. So these, so these West Pointers and VMI guys from 68 showed up um, around January of 70. So they only had a few months to go before they made captain. And then, and then some of those guys got, got companies, um, you know, as very junior captains, they got command of, a, uh, command of a company, of a rifle company, or even an engineer company. In the case of a, of a 68 VMI guy, he eventually extended his tour and got command of an engineer company. That could be a 24-year-old, 24-year-old taking command of a company. Yes, absolutely. Because you graduated at around age 22, two years to captain. Absolutely. And there was a bunch, there was a bunch of West Pointers, and I know of a couple of VMI guys that the end of their when they reached captain towards the end of their tour, they extended their tour six months to get command of a cap of a company, which was considered a, a plum assignment. I like to think those guys that did that, they either ended up dead or made 06 in the end. One or the other, holy cow. Do, do you remember if there was a feeling, this is something, so I, I graduated high school in 2004. The Iraq invasion was a, a year prior. We'd been in Afghanistan for three years. And while I was headed the military route, eventually to West Point, there was a thought in 2004 that if you want to be a part of this conflict, um, better hurry up because you're going to miss it. Do you remember if there was any feeling like that of, of Vietnam's going to be over any day now if, if this generation wants to go to war, which I know sounds may sound odd to the listeners, but was there a feeling of people thinking they were maybe going to miss it, if that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, not everybody. But um, I remember talking to my ranger buddy, who was a, a classmate from VMI, um, Jamie Totten, and he, he and he and I were taught we had reconnected a couple of years ago when I was living in Florida. And I was also at a 50 year VMI reunion and I briefly talked to him and he mentioned he was afraid he was going to miss out on it. And he's one of those guys that extended his tour six months to get command of a company. And yes, he did. He eventually retired out of the reserves as an 06. But um, yeah, yeah. Now, how many other people? I, I'm sure there, there was. There was, because things were starting to wind down a little bit. So there was a little bit of a feeling of that for the guys that wanted in on the action. But my gosh, they, everybody got more than they bargained for. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot worse than than uh, watching training films and military science class. You know, it's it's interesting. It's that that maybe innocence is the word I'd use, where young men want to be a part of the thing, um, and then yeah. So you, you said winding down, which is I think interesting because we broadly today i'd say most people say vietnam was 65 to 75 very very loosely right some plenty of action before that and then kind of wrapped up in 75 
when you're saying winding down, you're saying from the peak of what, 67, 68, was that kind of the peak of the fighting in Vietnam? Well, not necessarily the peak of the fighting, but as far, because there was plenty of fighting that went on afterwards, but um, units were starting to stand down. For example, um, the fourth ID was standing down. Uh, The big red one was standing down. And the, and the rule was if, if you had six months to go on your tour or more, you didn't, they let, they let the guys with uh, less than six months go home. The guys that had more than six months, they got farmed out to some other division. And in, in the case of the poor guys from the big red one, excellent soldiers, those guys had it together. But when they showed up in RAO and were integrated in with us, they, I think they were dumbfounded at how much harder it was in the 101st AO as opposed to where they were had been at. They had been further south. They were operating in lowlands, rice paddies and all that. And they ended up in the 101st AO um, in mountains, jungled mountains against hardcore NVA, bearing in mind that the, that the DMZ was only about 20, 25, maybe 30 kilometers away. And the Alshaw Valley was what in RAOs six or seven or eight clicks away. So <laughs> the, the NVA was a regular fighting force. The, these guys were badass, you know. That's an interesting point, though. We, we, I think the further we get from events, it's easy to simplify things. And we, we tend to group Vietnam all together, but every area of the country was a different different situation. There were relatively peaceful areas, I imagine, and, and some that were heavily, heavily contested. And as you mentioned, some that were fighting uniformed troops. Well, yeah, because in a typical Vietnam movie, and I would say, by the way, I never did see Hamburger Hill, but I saw a platoon, and I thought that was pretty accurately shown. But uh-huh. most of the time, you know, they're showing you know, U.S. troops in lowlands, they're in villages, they're civilians, and then there's problems with civilians and yada, yada, yada. And that's kind of the typical thought of Vietnam. But you take the good old 101st from, what, 69 on, we're up close to the DMZ out in mountains, not either in or close to the Asha Valley, and there's no civilians out there. It, there's nobody. If something moves in the dark, it's NBA. That's all there is. It's a and it's a free fire zone. If it moved, you shot it. And I think most listeners know this, but just to clarify, NBA North Vietnamese Army, the uniformed troops of North Vietnam. Whereas a lot of what I think, as you said that, Bob, I think you're right. A lot of movies tend to show what we might refer to as Viet Cong or guerrilla fighters. Um, which were more prep, would it be safe to say they were more prevalent the further south you went? Um, probably. I mean, there was NVA all through the country, you know, in the central highlands and all that. But um, uh, yeah, at, yeah, I would say to a, some degree that's true. So you graduate, you're on the fast track to get to Vietnam. Seems like they didn't waste any time. Do you remember any feelings when you were going over? Was it excitement, nervousness? Did you have friends who had come and gone? 
Um, what was that whole just feeling of going to war? Um, wow, I'm not sure. I, the feeling was more like, yeah, this is something I need to go over and see what this is all about. I did talk to a few people that had come back um, for uh, lessons learned. I, I talked to a lieutenant that had been in the first cab. He had come back. He was all shot up and he was on terminal, not terminal leave, but he was he was XO of a unit and it was just a few months, but he had, he had been in the first cabs AO, which was down around Benoit and they were operating with tanks and stuff like that. And RPG hit a tank and, and, and peppered him with shrapnel. And, you know, that was kind of a different area than what I was in, but yeah, I got a flavor of a little bit of what was going on um, to a degree. I'm trying to think if anybody came back to VMI, upperclassmen had come back oh, and yeah. said, you know, uh, yeah, I, re I remember one guy, Phil Joya from 67 came back. By the way, Phil Joya ended up in the, he was interviewed in the Ken Burns. Um, oh, okay. Uh, 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 and he, he had been in a brigade of the 82nd that when Tet hit, they took a brigade out of the 82nd and sent them to Vietnam. The 82nd is generally not considered a Vietnam unit um, because they're always on standby. But um, but one brigade got sent over and his platoon uncovered all the dead bodies outside way where all the intellectuals and, and doctors and all those have been massacred. But I remember him coming coming back and um, talking a little bit at VMI. I, I don't remember any particular lessons learned, but um yeah there, there was a little bit of it and what did the process look like when you got in country is it uh you went in you went into benoit flew in uh i, I can only speak of how the officers there was an officer's billet there and um it was like a holding tank and then there was a bulletin board out front and i remember we were there a day or two and this one guy came running in like was sort of like Oh shit, we're all headed for the 101st. And things were starting to really um, wind up, wind, you know, in the 101st. So, you know, we all knew about Hamburger Hill and all that. We knew um, it was going to be bad. Uh, one of the one of my fellow platoon leaders who's active in my in my company, when he was in processing in, he saw a guy from his college who was special forces and and he said, ah, I'm going to the 101st. And his buddy, who was special forces, said, you got to find a way to get out of that. You do not want to go to the 101st. That is a terrible place to go. And, um, and that guy, consequently, he, he hit a booby trap or what you guys call an IED and lost his, his lower leg out of it, you know. Um, so it was considered a horrible place to go in Vietnam. That's an interesting piece here that's, I, I think it's unique to the Vietnam War. I mean, the military changes all the time, but we, there were replacements flowing in and out at all times and units stayed. So the 101st was in Vietnam for was it? years. Yeah. Yeah. A long, long time. Whereas in, in modern conflicts, we see units go over for six to 18 months. They train up together, they deploy together, they come back, you know, hopefully as, as much together as they can. But Vietnam, the units stayed, which is where you bring up the 82nd Airborne wasn't a, a Vietnam unit. Because there was the whole Cold War going on still. We couldn't put everything, every single thing in there. But so you showed up 
not knowing yet that you're going to the 101st. Correct. You don't know until you get in country and then they, they farm out the assignments according to need in, in some G1 shop down in Saigon and they figure out who goes where. And, and, that's, and when I arrived in country, the CAV was still in Cambodia because we landed at, at Benoit, which uh, same air uh, airstrip that was uh, CAV headquarters. We got off the plane and there's like grunts there, like just dirty and filthy from the field, you know, all kitted up. And they've got they've got NVA sitting on the ground with like uh, uh, handcuffs or restraints behind him where they had hauled him out of Cambodia. So we got a good glimpse of, you know, what a grunt looks like after you've been there for a while. Wow. That's interesting. So you, you get to see I mean, get to see maybe not the right way to put it, but you see war right away. It's not hidden. Yeah. Yeah. You step off the airplane and it's just like if you were sitting up uh at an airstrip in the 101st area at a, at a log pad back at uh, back at the base camp where guys you just come in and they've got prisoners and stuff like that with them and there they are sitting on the tarmac at Benoit you know hmm. so the 101st what I didn't realize was that the 101st was one of the only full units still remaining one of the last was it the last full division no, the cab, the cab was the last one to leave. 101st might have been next to the last, possibly. I don't know. But anyways, the 101st is a little further north and gets tagged with this Operation Texas Star. Would you yeah. mind going into some of that? Well, that, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there was always a continuous operation going on. Texas Star ran from March 70 to the first week of September... 70. Uh, go back to Hamburger Hill for a minute. Um, so the 3rd Brigade of the 101st, they're moving into the Oshaw Valley. Hamburger Hill sits right smack dab, right in the Oshaw Valley, not more than two or three clicks from Laos. So they're in the valley up until the fall of 69, and then they move back into the lowlands. Reason? The monsoon comes in. The monsoon socks in, you, this is mountainous terrain, monsoon socks everything in so you can't get helicopters in, and almost all the fire bases uh, that are operational end up getting shut down unless they can be accessed by road. So everybody moves inland until the fighting season, <laughs> there's that word, fighting season, starts back up again in March where the monsoon lifts and you can actually see mountaintops and everybody moves back in. And that's the idea on Texas Star was to start out over by Ripcord, which was called the warehouse area, which was a buildup of supplies. That The AO of Ripcord is about uh, six, seven, eight kilometers to the west of the Asha Valley. So it's not directly in the valley, but it's just you know, a skip and a hop away from the valley. And as I understand, the, the, the idea was to go back into the valley for the summer and do the usual stuff. But ripcord got so bad that nobody ever made it to the valley um, that year. If ripcord's right, if ripcord's west of Asha, you're right on the border. Uh, no, not quite. No, no. I... The Ashaw runs along the border, like okay. for example, Hamburger Hill 
is um, two or three clicks from the border, but then you're moving, but you're moving further east away from mm. the valley towards the coastland. That to give you a geographic idea, you've you've got the Gulf of Tonkin. You've got okay, picture the the uh, DMZ to the north. Moving south, you have provinces just like you did in Afghanistan. The most northernmost is Quang Tri province. Just to the south of that is. Um, uh, what is the name of that? Two of 10 province. Okay. This is Northern I-Corps, the 101st AO. Uh, the fifth, a brigade of the fifth mech is up on the, on the DMZ itself because it's kind of lowlands and there's a highway. And that's one brigade of the fifth mech consisting of tanks and APCs. Just to the south, you've got the 101st, which is light infantry. And they're all out in the mountainous areas going over towards the border. So to the to the east, you have the Gulf of Tonkin. You have lowlands, which extend inland for about, I don't know, eight or 10 clicks. And then you hit the front range of the Amanese Mountains. And then it's continuous mountains and jungle all the way out into Laos. The population lives in the lowlands. And the principal city there is Hue. If you read Street Without Joy, the street without joy runs from Hue straight up Highway One. There's one coastal highway up to Quang Tri. The base camp for the Third Brigade of the 101st is Camp Evans, which is halfway between Hue and Quang Tri along Highway One. The AO operationally is out in the mountains, which is about eight or ten clicks to the west of Camp Evans in the lowlands. And you keep on rolling west, and you roll on right on into the Asha Valley, and then and then almost immediately into Laos. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that. So the proximity to, I guess, why was this area so contested? Why why was your, I guess, friend of a friend, the special forces officer, saying try to get out of the hundred first? Why was there so much fighting up here? Well, there was plenty of North Vietnamese. During Ripcord, basically the second of the 506 augmented from time to time by 2501 and 1506 was up against two divisions of Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese. Uh, I, can't, I can't give you the names of them, but if you want order of battle, I, I can name you three books on Ripcord. The first and best known, of course, was um, Ripcord, Screaming Eagles Under Siege, written by Keith Nolan. That is the definitive book on Ripcord. And then the second book was Remembering Firebase Ripcord by, um, by Christopher Brady, who was a journalist, and his father had been there. And then the third one by General Ben Harrison is called Hell on a Hilltop, where General Harrison actually went back to Vietnam and interviewed the North Vietnamese generals and officers who we contested against. Now, the reason why there was so much fighting, well, that, that was the head end of the trail. I mean, the, the Ho Chi Minh Trail went down the Asha and then skirted into Laos, eventually Cambodia. I mean, this was, they needed that trail. That's where all the trucks and ammo and everything went, went down south. So, they were ready to stand and fight in that area. Can you get into how Ripcord played into everything here? It, it 
I, I was talking to somebody recently and what I didn't realize was they said that journalists and photographers borderline weren't allowed at ripcord um true so there's a true yeah it seems like a strange amount that isn't out there so yeah can you just talk about firebase ripcord fire sport based ripcord what the what the role it played here well it was going to be the jumping off spot for the whole texas star like i say it was only about eight kilometers away from the oshaw valley uh it was to supposedly to deny the NVA use of that area. Um, let's see, typically in a fire base, that became a battalion headquarters. The TOC was located there. Either one or two firing batteries were located on a fire base. In the case of Ripcord, there was two batteries, uh, one battery of 105s, one of 155s. Typically, battalion headquarters is there. And of the four rifle companies, in a battalion, um, either a company minus, sometimes a full company, or occasionally just a platoon was protecting the fire base. And the other three companies are permanently outside the wire. And they rotate them in. Um, outside the wire really means outside the wire. And we're literally talking wire because the fire base is protected by there was no Hescos or anything like that in the day. It was all it was all uh, concertina, uh, claymores, fugas, um, fighting positions, bunkers, everything. Uh, you know, Conex containers uh, were used as uh, bunkers. You sit them in the ground and um, and put dirt on top of them. Uh, the engineers used miniature bulldozers uh, on fire bases. Uh, a typical fire base is only accessed by air. There's no roads. Um, so you, you operate rifle companies on one big continuous movement to contact, never ending, world without end, movement to contact uh, outside the wire and occasionally bring those units in for a little rest up on the fire base and then go back out again operate three days, third day, get a resupply uh, by helicopter comes in, kicks out your C rations, ammo, uh, uniforms. If somebody needs a uniform, it's been ripped up going through the jungle. Um, so a three day resupply and it's just movement to contact, movement to contact. That's all it is. You said foo gas as part of the defensive works. What is that? That's a 55 gallon drum filled with napalm. It's got a, huh. uh, you got a, you got a clacker and some type of, you, uh, you might use a claymore or a um, detonator of some kind. Um, and it's, and it blows, um, it blows napalm out towards the outer perimeter of the fire base. Fire base is pretty small. I think, I think a cop and, Afghanistan may have been even a little larger than what a fire base would be. Yeah. The difference being we had artillery on the fire base. I'm not so sure there was so much artillery used in Afghanistan, but we used a lot of it in Vietnam. And when you said the guys are operating um, outside the wire, given that they're dismounted, I would imagine that that's probably didn't feel this way for those humping around, but 
relatively close range to ripcord, a couple kilometers? Yes. Um, I would say, yeah, no more than maybe four kilometers away. A lot of times in, in range of uh, 81, 81 uh, millimeter mortars, okay. four, four deuce mortars, which was the, today is replaced by a 120, but four deuce mortars. Um, if you look, I think you saw, did you see the film from, uh, of Ripcord that uh, Signal Corps shot? Yeah, of the, of the artillery on ripcord. You notice the tubes are pointed straight up in the air. I saw some pointed straight up in the air, and I saw some pointed straight down. The ones that are up in the air, the the NBA is so close that they're being used like mortars. When you saw when you saw that tube pointed straight down, it was actually downhill. In that particular incident. If you see Captain Rich, the battery commander, they are actually in a duel with a 57 millimeter NVA recoilless rifle. They're duking it out, mano a mano, uh, 57 versus 105, shooting straight at each other. Jeez. The, the 105 won that duel. There you go. So Ripcord was stood up in the March, April timeframe, but there's a period in July known as the Battle of Ripcord. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And was that just, was that a battle, given that Ripcord is this jumping off point for Texas Star, was this Battle of Ripcord NVA initiated? Um, well, the NVA was always there. Okay. So this is this is this is the hundred and first saying, okay, it's now fighting season time. Let's head on out to the mountains and uh, do our thing. So what prompted wh why is this period in July specifically marked as the battle of ripcord, base ripcord? Well, Start okay. Starting in March, when they, when they, when the second of the five hundred six went out and, shall we say, reopened the firebase, there was there was a series of battles that took place. Uh, I would reference you to the book. Uh, I can't speak to them directly because I didn't get there till mid-May. My okay. company actually, uh, Charlie Company, second of the five hundred six, actually built the the uh, firebase, but there was a number of units that had made combat assaults in there before uh, the NVA protested at first. And then eventually we settled into a period of um, minor, this, is, this would be in the spring, minor, minor battles, uh, some minor firefights and stuff like that. It all changed on July 1st um, when two things happened. Uh, my company minus uh, two platoons in the, um, in the CP of the company uh, came under attack on Hill 902. Now that doesn't mean anything to anybody. You'd have to have the maps. And I specifically reference the one to 50,000 um, alloy map. That's A and then L-O-U-I or something like that. That's the one everybody operated on. And then there's an aviation map, the one to 250,000 if you get the right one, it'll show all the fire base locations. But on July 2nd, July 1st, 
um, the NVA started mortaring ripcord. And then that night they attacked my company on Hill 902. And then from then on, it was just constant, constant mortaring. And then all companies in 2506 were in constant contact up until uh, July 23rd. So that's why that is okay. defined as the battle. Now you mentioned leading up to July, there were minor firefights. What did a minor firefight look like? Uh, firing up a trail watcher, small engagements, maybe uh, maybe booby traps, command debt set off. Um, there was there was certainly firefighting and and um, and mortaring in retaking Ripcord. Uh, not Hamburger Hill. There was nobody dug in sure. on the, that hill on that hilltop that's Ripcord, but there was mortars and stuff like that. Um, there was an initial air assault, and then the, everybody was 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 withdrawn, and then they went back back in again, and until finally things settled down, they immediately brought the engineers in, started laying wire, started burying connex containers to make bunkers and stuff like that. So, as opposed to uh, attacks on a night defensive position, where you have an all night fight with with sappers um or in the case of alpha 2506 got into a horrendous fight on uh july 22nd the day before ripcord was abandoned um they were there was what maybe 75 of them got attacked by 400 nva so they oh. had a hell of a fight they had a hell of a fight and they they had 14 guys killed just in that one engagement. So, um, you know, it was pretty bad. That would be a major fight. And I, I bring up the, the term minor firefight because I just have a feeling when people say that, that it's relative and that what now you think of as a minor firefight would have been a life-altering event. You know, the, the one thing that stood out in somebody's life, uh, if they just experienced that one thing, but because of what you and your guys went through at Ripcord. Um, yeah, relatively minor firefights. Right, what, yeah, yeah. Was your first, no. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Was your first experience in combat when your company was attacked there at the beginning of July? Um, I would guess so, because there'd been some minor stuff where we fired up a trail watcher or something like that, but that's not really a fight. I mean, that's, no, the, 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 the main thing was uh, that July 2nd attack, um, which I hate to think of it, but the history book said we were overrun. So if, you know, if we were overrun, we were overrun, you know, um, and we had, we had eight guys killed in that. We had up on that hilltop, we had two platoons and a CP, probably no more than 50 guys. Because um, our third, we had two, the, the third platoon was over pulling security on Ripcord. They had left the hilltop that day and um, went over to Ripcord to pull security. And we were about, uh, I think Hill 902 is about four clicks away from Ripcord, something like that. So, uh, and we got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry and um and that was a, a fight from four in the morning till six in the morning 
like I say, with eight killed. There was an MIA. Nobody ever found his body. Uh, practically everybody was wounded in that deal. So yeah, that was that was a major deal. Um, as you say, kind of a life-altering event. Absolutely. And at 4 a.m., that's was that typical to see the NBA attack around that time? Did they prefer oh, yeah. those? Okay. Well, no. It, when Alpha Company got chewed up on July 2nd, that was a daylight deal. But it, it was typical stuff. The, the old uh, O Dark 30 thing. Everybody likes to attack at O Dark 30. Um, so, um, yeah, pretty typical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometime during the night. I think of all the fire bases that have been overrun, it was always a nighttime attack. Always. Was there over this, you were at Ripcord for that full duration of, of the battle, correct? The well, industry. for me, actually, well, Ripcord started in March. I got there mid-May and then I was there for the rest of it. Yeah. Were there times in that fight where from your perspective or, or maybe others, it, it felt like the firebase might be overrun? Um, I don't know. Um, the firebase was never overrun. My company commander mm -hmm. built it. He was a special forces guy. He had, he had built special forces camps in the Delta region on previous, on a previous tour. He was so good at it. He laid the wire so that nobody could get through it. So, um, I, I don't know. There's always the possibility of being overrun, but of course, everybody, there was a pretty heightened alert. Uh, nobody was slouches on ripcord. Everybody knew that it was pretty desperate there. And I think that the, the, that speaks to the construction of the defensive position, right? The bunkers, the machine guns, the interlocking fire, the mortars, the artillery, the claymores, the fugas, which just sounds like the nastiest of things. But you, you must have had a lot of confidence in that build to have repeated attacks day after day, night after night, and uh, know that you guys be able to hold. Well, the, the attacks were, there was no ground assault on Ripcord other than some probes. Mm -hmm. People would appear on the perimeter. There, there was never a, a ground attack. All these attacks with all this loss of, the loss of life on Ripcord was being mortared to death. I mean, there was people killed all the time there from mortar fire with the, the, uh, the small arms engagements were all in the line companies operating outside the wire where big firefights or attacks on night defensive positions and stuff like that occurred. Um, for example, uh, Delta company 2501 was made OPCON 2501 was in the ripcord AO with the 2506. And then they, they were the fire brigade of the 101st. They'd go off and do something and then come back to the Ripcord AO. Delta Company got detached and made OPCON to 2506. And they put those poor bastards out on Hill 805 for like four nights in a row. And they were dangled out there as bait. And they were attacked every night to the point where the rumor was they even dropped some wire in to put around the hilltop and they gave them two 90 millimeter recoilless rifles with uh, with flechette rounds and they got attacked every night for like four nights in a row um, as a part of the deal. So what I'm saying is 
the actual attacks are on what we call NDPs, night defensive positions. That was all a part of operating outside the wire. Every company, every platoons operated separately, by the way. CP would attach itself to one platoon. And um, until things got so bad that they pulled the companies together. But, um, uh, you know, you'd set up every night on a high ground as a night defensive positions and you had to prepare the position and, and you assumed that you were going to get attacked. Um, I mean, it, not always, but that was always in the back of your mind. And that's when you put your claymores out and stuff like that. Within your platoon, were there any NCOs, non-commissioned officers or, or soldiers that stand out in your mind as being kind of the go-to guys in the midst of some of this nasty, nasty Yeah, fighting? Yeah, uh, my platoon sergeant was pretty good. Um, uh, one, of, one of my squad leaders, uh, we called him Burr Lives. He was pretty good. He was a stone-cold killer. Yeah. The, and, and these poor guys, these NCOs, there's no old hands. There's no Korean War guys. They're, they're all shaken fakes. I bet you never heard that term. What is that? You know what OCS is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Imagine the same thing. The Army needed sergeants. So they created an OCS style thing for, to create sergeants. And if they thought you were good enough, they put you into a regiment that was pretty much the same as OCS. And when you walked out of it, you were a, a, an E5. Really? If, you were the, if you were the honor graduate of your class, they made you an E6. And they shipped you off to Vietnam to be an E5 would normally be a fire team leader in today's army. Mm -hmm. and and an e6 would be the squad leader and an e7 the platoon sergeant what happened was there was there was no old school e7s in the field there was no old school e6s in the field every nco you got was a shake and bake pretty much and so you've got you've got e5s and e6s that have no more experience than a second lieutenant straight out of iobc no kidding no kidding. And you pointed out that it's not like you got to train up together in the States and went over together. That, that was World War II and today. Vietnam was a screwed up deal with, with divisions staying in Vietnam for years, and it was just a constant cycle of replacements. Do you know why they did that, why they chose that route of individual replacements? I don't think I've come across that. I have no idea. Okay. But it was probably the stupidest thing that ever came along. Because nobody had a chance to train together. A new guy comes in and he's the FNG. He's the funny new guy. And then, and nobody would have anything to do with him until he'd been there for a while. And they said, well, I guess the guy's not dead yet. So I guess we can befriend him and all that. So. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting piece of this war. I, I, I feel like if I really try hard, I can come up with a benefit, but I wouldn't want to be in that situation. So I guess maybe that says something. Uh, maybe the army didn't have enough units to rotate in and out. As you pointed out, the cold war is still going on. Um, and think of the logistics of constantly moving men back and forth. Um, I don't know, but Vietnam was basically a light infantry war. It's not like tanks and stuff, you know? 
was was ripcord controversial is that the reason that the reporter access was limited well yeah because hamburger hill that was that whole show was from the third brigade of the 101st all the units involved well guess what exactly one year later you got ripcord guess who's there third brigade of the 101st <clears throat> with two out of the three units um uh, you had two 506 and one 506 the third of the 187th got a, got a buy on that one because they had gotten chewed up at, at hamburger hill so they were assigned to the lowlands and all they had to deal with was Viet Cong once in a while <clears throat> meanwhile 2506 1506 and a whole lot of the rest of the 101st is out in the mountains dealing with the NVA. <clears throat> so, I mean, this was, if I'm not mistaken, I think Leon got into this a little bit in that, that episode. The, the issue at Hamburger Hill was the American public was kind of being told that this war was winding up and we were winning. And then a fight like Hamburger Hill happens and we go, what the heck? How is there this much fight left in the enemy? Yeah, I yeah, that's probably true. Heimberger Hill made all the papers and <clears throat> it was discussed in Congress. Here you got ripcord <clears throat> and um, 101st made sure nobody knew about that one. Even to this day, I, nobody has a clue. There's, even though there's three books out on it, um, um, nobody knows really. Three's not a lot. I mean, it's good there's something, but but given the size and scope of this battle and now that we're 50 years removed from it, that's, that's, that, I think that shows how there's not a lot of information about this fight. Right. Right. And, um, uh, Leon gave you some statistics on hamburger Hill, like number of artillery rounds fired and all that. The only thing from the books, I, I would say if, if you Wikipedia ripcord, it'll only discuss, 1 July through 23 July, you know, it'll say 75 people killed. But the, the real battle, if you, if you go to the Ripcord website for the association, it'll show it starting on 12 March, running through 23 July. And the total number there is, is 139 killed. Um, I don't know how many of hundreds, if not thousands were wounded in that engagement. Um, and, and the whole show in Vietnam centered around Ripcord. All the ammo that was coming in was being sent north to uh, up to the 101st because of Ripcord. And I, I think that what did in Ripcord, <clears throat> General <clears throat> Cindy Berry was really running the show, assistant division commander of the 101st, because General Hennessy was back in the States on leave. And <clears throat> General Berry, Sid Berry, who went on to become superintendent at West Point, <clears throat> he finally pulled the plug because uh, Mac V headquarters started limiting the amount of 81 millimeter ammo going up to the 101st. And the uh, NVA upped the game, <clears throat> instead of using 80, just 82 millimeter mortars on us, they, they brought in some 120s and started hammering ripcord with 120s. And, and, um, and, and General Barry decided that this was untenable. And, um, and that's why Ripcord was pulled out on 23 July. Uh, Colonel Lucas, who was battalion commander of 2506, he set it up. Uh, 
He wasn't going to abandon the artillery. He wanted it. He wanted an orderly withdrawal. So at O-Dark 30, the Chinooks came in and started lifting what was left of the artillery out because the 105 battery had been destroyed. So that left the 155. So they started pulling the 155s out. And then there was uh, an evacuation of the fire base that day. Um, at one, and then um, Colonel Lucas was killed during the evacuation when he and the S3 got hit with a 120 and um, he died on the way back in the medevac. And um, so third brigade sent some people out <clears throat> to oversee the, the rest of the withdrawal. <clears throat> now, I something that I think is when I read and, and watch military history movies, there's something that I think, um, unless you've been in it, it's probably not anything you can ever replicate or understand what it feels like. And I have not been in it. Um, but under consistent artillery or mortar attack sounds horrifying. Is, did you guys have any notice when those were coming in? Um, well, I, I, I had been on ripcord but, but prior to 1 July. So things were not, were not bad. So I can only go by what, what other people are telling me and what you read in the book. But yeah, it was pretty bad on Ripcord. In fact, one of the, there was a professional football player killed on Ripcord. The, the XO, Bob Kelsu, there's, there's things at Fort Campbell named for him. Um, uh, in fact, the replacement center at Fort Campbell is named after Bob Kelsu. Um, he he was a professional football player, artillery guy, and he was the XO of A Battery, 2nd of the 11th Artillery, which was the 155 Battery. <clears throat> and uh, he, was, he was killed towards the end of Ripcord uh, on either an 82 or a 120. But he, uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, Ripcord was constantly getting hammered by 82s and, and in the end, 120s. So the end of Ripcord was... Uh, sounds strange. It's almost like an administrative deal. Ammo is going to stop coming, then we're not going to try to sustain that fight. Is that, did I hear that correctly? And, and the 120s. The 120s. With the enemy bringing the 120s in. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big mortar. Uh, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, you just don't haul that around. I mean, in fact, our line, you know, in an infantry company, uh, you're supposed to have 81 millimeters, but you, you can't haul those things in the mountains. So all the 81s were placed on the fire base under one command in what we, we had an echo company. A through D was, was a uh, rifle and echo was, um, was mortars. Uh, what you call scouts today was recon then. And um, oh, any, any ash and trash, any extra stuff that went along in a, in a battalion headquarters, uh, when an echo company and then HHC was strictly headquarters, uh, not like it is today where it has scouts and mortars and all that. But uh, so all the 81s were on the fire base. Um, you can't haul them through the jungle. And so it took, it took the NVA a while to get those 120s positioned around ripcord. I can't imagine carrying a 120 millimeter through down the street let alone through a jungle or uh, yeah. those are big. Yep, yep, they are, yep. Man. So 
something, just a, a big a historical rant here. I, as we get further from events, we tend to look more at numbers than, than experience and stories. And I, I think that maybe is one of the reasons that Ripcord isn't remembered as much as it should be. I mean, I, you said, Bob, the, the Wikipedia article says 1 through 23 July, and it calls out 75 Americans killed, which if you compare to Normandy or, or battles in the Pacific, it, it doesn't sound like very much. But by comparison, the deadliest month in the entire Afghanistan war across that entire country cost 66 American lives. And Ripcord was tiny, just a tiny, tiny little area. It was... Um, it was a really serious battle. And I, I, I don't know, I, I think we, we compare things to our own detriment. Um, you know, it wasn't D-Day, it wasn't, it wasn't Okinawa. It doesn't mean that it wasn't impactful. It wasn't a, a crazy place to experience, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I've stayed pretty close to the 101st, like, and to the units, I'm very close to, I'm in the 506 Association. <clears throat> very close to my company and all that. And I, you know, in that 2010, um, <clears throat> 101st thing in Afghanistan, whole division went, all four brigades. <clears throat> I was back there on the homecoming and sat in on, you know, I was there at the memorial dinners and stuff where, awesome. and, and, and like for the whole year for the 101st, the, the KIA list for the whole year read like three weeks in Vietnam, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm, I'm a comparison guy. I always like to compare for context and it's not, yeah, I think we've lost sight as we move on from Vietnam. It's, yeah. yeah the, 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 you know, when you really had a big firefight, the casualties were horrendous. When a fire base got overrun, the casualties were, were always horrendous. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we, we never lost a fire base. It's not like somebody ran the NBA flag up, the flagpole. That never happened. But when the dust settled, it's like, you know, yeah, we're still here. But my gosh, the, the price that was paid would be was unbelievable. You know, I mean, everything that happened, you paid a, a horrendous price for it, you know. Now, we just kind of wrapped up at the end of July, but you still had, what, nine months or something left in country? Yeah, I, I got out of the field actually pretty early. I, I got out at the end of August of, um, of that year. So like a, a month after, a little over a month after Ripport. I went back to 3rd Brigade to the S3 shop, and I was the L&O for 3rd Brigade. And it was an interesting job in that I got to see everything going on in I-Corps. Uh, I, you know, I flew around to all the fire bases, did map traces of, of the night defensive positions off the, off the maps in each of the talks, both, both 3rd Brigade and Arvin fire bases. Mm. Took, it back, took it back to 3rd Brigade, posted it on the 3rd on the Brigade map at Brigade Head and the brigade talk and then every day i had to fly down to camp eagle to 101st headquarters to the division talk which was a dog and pony show kind of like the friday follies um and had to had to post all the ndp positions from third brigade onto the division map in the division talk 
and there was this massive wall where they took they took all the one to fifty thousand maps and cut them and pasted them together so that you could see everything in the AO from from north of Da Nang to to the DMZ. Holy cow! And it had all the NDPs and fire bases on it. By that time, the information's twenty four hours old. But but that's what I did after I left the field. Um, probably I would call it the second best rear area job in the 101st. The best one being my buddy Bill Brownsberger ended up in L Company 75th Rangers. And that was a pretty plum assignment. Um, that would have been the best assignment in the 101st, I think, to be an L Company. Why? What, what was special about L Company? Uh, they're a Ranger company. Totally different uh, uh, skill set from today's 75th. Uh, today's guys are kicking doors and um, uh, the Rangers back then was all hide and slide. It was all recon. Go back to Ranger school. I'm sure today they're kicking door. They're teaching door kicking in Ranger school. Um, but some of those patrols are recon, hide and slide. So uh, L Company was an LRS. Today they call it LRS, which has been done away with. But then it was called LERP, which is long range reconnaissance patrols. And those are all five man teams. Uh, inserted, and they would operate in the Ashau. They might take a stab into Laos and stuff like that, but they were strictly recon, uh, no contact. If you made contact, then your mission was blown. Hmm. That sounds crazy. Well, every, every division, including in Europe at the course, they had a ranger company. And the idea was that was the eyes and ears on the ground for the division. Um, a, a separate, they were called separate, in, in, the, in the world of Rangers, that would have been known as a Vietnam era separate letter company. In the 101st, it was L Company. In the one, 173rd, it was N Company. Uh, the CAV had their own company and so on. Gotcha, okay. Well, we're coming up on the hour mark here. Bob, is there anything we didn't hit on? No, I think we got with? it. If you really want the details of Ripcord, I suggest reading one of the books. Um, the most definitive book is uh, Ripcord, Screaming Eagles Under Siege by Keith Nolan. I had huge problems with that book because he got some things wrong. He vilified some people that should not have been vilified. Um, no offense to Keith, but his book is over 20 years old. And he, the people that get interviewed first get to tell their stories. And then the mm -hmm. follow-on guys say, wait a minute, that's not the way I remember it. <laughs> so then when uh, Christopher Brady came along and wrote uh, Remembering Firebase Ripcord, he corrected some of the things from Keith Nolan um, and, and even some of the after action, re if they quoted an after action report, I remember being pissed at one of them on Hill 902, where, you know, he who gets interviewed gets to tell the story and then the rest of us say, wait a minute, that wasn't the way it was. So anyway, there's, there's that aspect of it. And then the third book is a totally different perspective from, from Major General Ben Harrison, who was at that time, uh, Colonel Harrison, Brigade Commander of 3rd Brigade. He was in charge of the whole Ripcord show. 
his book is interesting because he went back to Vietnam and interviewed all the North Vietnamese. So that was a total. So if you take those three books together, you get a pretty good idea of, of Ripcord. Well, I'll put each one of those in the show notes here so people can look those up. But I will say one, um, something I didn't know about, you mentioned being active with your company and with the 506th Association, the 101st Association. I was not at all. Um, I don't know if it takes time after you leave the unit to want to get back into that, but I'm, I'm glad I did. Made it to Week of the Eagles this last year where you and I got to meet for the first time, Bob, and I'm looking forward to doing that again with the, I think the next August going up to uh, Grand Rapids, hopefully, for the, yeah. uh, for the 101st. Well, interestingly enough, me and Bill Brownsberger, who's one of my contemporaries, he was in the 1501 when I was in 2506. And we, we frequently meet with Sarah and watching, I know what's happened to me over the years. You go through a period where you disassociate completely with anything that happened there. And in 2010, my point man found me on the internet. And that's when I started reconnecting with my company, got in the 506 association, started going to ripcord reunions and all that. I've been watching Sarah closely. Sarah's gone through a 10-year period where he disengaged in what was going on. He was busy being a financial analyst, became a lawyer. And now with the events in Afghanistan, there's been a marked change in Sarah. And I said to Sarah, you know what? Since I've reconnected, I have a hard time associating with civilians. The people I associate with are military guys. And when I say that, I mean the Afghan, the GWAT guys, they're in the same club, same acronyms, same, same, everything, just some years difference. And in civilians don't get it. No offense to you civilians out there, but there's a total disconnect between the military and civilians. And I consider myself military. And I said, Sarah, these days, it's almost like I never left. It never, ever leaves me. And Sarah said, it's happened to me, except it happened to Sarah in 10 years, and it took 35 or 40 years for it to happen to me. So Preston, you might look forward to what's going to happen. You're going to start to reconnect, and all the things that may not have been important suddenly became important. And who did what in some firefight, you may want to forget about it. But years later, it's like, well, what really did happen? Who did what? Um, I went through a thing with my point man where he lost a weapon in a, in a firefight and he felt guilt for 40 years because he lost the weapon. And finally, talk, at one of the reunions, talking to a guy, he said, oh, yeah, when we loaded up all the wounded, we found all these weapons and we threw them in the, in the medevac. And his weapon went back to the rear because uh, he had become separated from it, but it had bothered him for 40 years. Holy and now... God. And now he's resting easy. I know what happened to my, my weapon, you know, because, you know, you don't lose your weapon. You don't. That rifle is yours. Wow. That's my only parting comment. <laughs> Hard to beat that. I, um, I, the meeting folks like yourself and was fortunate to meet a handful of Vietnam veterans. We were up at Campbell and it's, it's humbling to have anything in common, like just being in the same unit, even the 101st Airborne Division, um, with people like yourself and, and others who fought uh, before I and before you. So, 
Um, Bob, thank you very much for your service and for taking time today to talk about this. It was really enjoyed. Okay, you take care, Preston. Look forward to seeing you again, probably down yeah. at Fort Campbell. But yes, if sir. you're ever in Dayton, ever in Dayton, drop in with see me and Sarah and Bill, and we'll all have a beer together. Sounds like a plan. Yes, sir. Okay, see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.